Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of A Couple With Mental Health. Today I have another guest. I, thought, I hope you've got your teas, coffees. I did a, a charity run earlier so I'm not quite ready for loads of tea yet. I'm in between a coffee and a diet coke if I'm honest. <laughs> but today I am with another guest so I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, my name's John uh, and basically... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here speaking to you, Lynn, about mental health um, and really raising awareness for the importance of, um, of, of, of looking into mental health uh, as regards to a holistically view and, and getting it out there. And let me just say it's also nice to hear it from a, a man's point of view. As we were saying earlier, um, when it comes to this podcast, I have put it out there for anybody to be part of it. And I do get a lot of women that want to be involved, but not many men want to be involved. So I'd like to say thank you for being part of this and giving men a voice. <laughs> uh, it's surprising when you breach the subject with another bloke, just how many men uh, have gone through a men mental health issue or are going through a mental health issue. Um... I currently work as a lorry driver and many times you have to work with other lorry drivers in the cab at the same time. And they're the type of blokes that probably wouldn't normally open up to you, mm. but in a confined space where you sat with someone for 10 hours of that day, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what can crop up. Um, but part of the reason why I wanted to come and talk to you today, and I'm, I'm happy to be doing the podcast, is to really speak up for those blokes that feel like, for whatever reason that they can't speak up and again thank you for that because i really really do appreciate it i think it's it's definitely needed in this in this day and age to know that it's okay to speak about any issues that you have so let's uh get on to how what your experiences went with mental health are um well, the main the main issue that I would like to speak about and that I'm dealing with at the minute today is um, is with depression. Mm -hmm. um, I was diagnosed with depression two years ago okay. by my GP. Um, although realistically, um, I think it would be safe to go going back and looking back. It'd be safe to assume that I've probably been dealing with depression for. Almost 10 years now. Okay. Um, and the only reason it got diagnosed is because I, I got to a point personally where I knew I had to go and get help. Uh, what, what, were, what brought you to that decision? Uh, basically, um, I was going through... I'd gone through a period of feeling suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I I got to the point where I had wrote a, a will. Okay. I'd um, I would plan different ways to do it. Sorry, this is quite heavy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Early on, no, it it needs to be it needs to be all out so that people can understand as well. I planned different ways of doing it in scenarios in my head that would be least have the least impact on my family emotionally first off. Mm -hmm. but also would not be too painful for me to do it myself. That's so, quite calculated. Yeah, I went down to a few different routes, but then 
there were points where my depression was so bad mm-hmm. where I literally felt like a walking zombie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the best example I can give was when my depression was at its worst, I would make car journeys and f- get to my destination and then turn the engine off and then not remember anything from the car journey. For example, when I drove here today, I could probably tell you two or three brands of cars that I've seen on yeah. my journey and a few landmarks. Yeah. I couldn't recall the whole journey at all. So, like on autopilot. Yeah, and there were time. There were more than several occasions where I would be driving along and let go of the steering wheel, right. and purposely let go of the steering wheel. Um, and the only thing that would make me stop, sometimes at the very last minute, slamming the brakes on and stopping in the middle of the road, yeah, would be realizing the impact it would have on drivers around me. Yeah. Or the fact that the situation probably wasn't enough to kill me anyway. So in the fact that the odds were too high against me. Right. Um, The point I got to was I was at a shopping centre. And I'd gone there for a specific reason. And I was having a really, really bad day. Mm -hmm. And um, again, it was one of those days where I couldn't remember making the journey. I must have let go of the steering wheel twice on the way there. Yeah. Um... It was a lovely sunny day like it is today, but it didn't feel like it. And I sat down in the shopping centre on a bench, Mm. um, completely motionless. And um, like I said, the only way I can describe it is like a zombie. I must have been there half an hour. Yeah. and I eventually made my way, way up to the top floor of the shopping centre and decided I was going to throw myself off it. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the point where I no longer cared about anyone around me or anything. Um, I got to, in my head, I was doing no one around me any good. Um, and whatever I was battling in my head, I could not make go away. And so I got to the top floor of this building and stood at the edge and was about to jump off when I, by chance, got a phone call off my mum. Yeah. And I genuinely believe if she hadn't made that call to me for whatever reason out of the blue that day, I would have jumped off. Mothers know, don't they? <laughs> so I put the phone down and made my way back to the car. Completely didn't go by anything. Yeah. Just decided, right... You know, I need to wake up from this now. But then as soon as I got in the car, I started to feel it again. And then, again, I took my hand off the steering wheel once or twice on the way back home. And that's when I got back home and I made an appointment to go to GP. And I convinced myself that I had to go and make an appointment at the GP. And the most surprising thing was that when I got to the GP eventually, Mm -hmm. to my appointment and made the very hard first step of saying I feel suicidal and not in a superficial way I actually tried to jump off a building yesterday yeah he turned around and went I've been waiting for this really and he said the thing is I can't approach you if you don't approach me that's that's an incredibly good doctor. And he said, um, 
I'm glad that you've come to see me when you did. But I wish you'd come sooner. Let's try and get you better. And um, and from there, it's been a turning point. From the minute I was diagnosed, it's been a turning point. And I've been getting a lot better. But I'm still dealing with some issues, you know, that obviously aren't going to go away overnight. No, they're not. I mean, it takes overnight for these to build. It's not going to go in a, a night either, is it? So, <laughs> But for your doctor to be already on the ball about that, that's that's... I don't know. I don't know how you would have took this, but if that was me, it would be either I've been showing signs for that long, or the doctor's that good. <laughs> the thing is, I've had the same GP for some years, and um, the what uh, what year are we in? Two thousand eighteen. Seven yeah. years ago, I lost my dad in an accident. Okay. So he was around for that, and because it was a motor vehicle accident. He, um, let me rephrase that, because it was an accident and there was insurance involved, we were basically offered counselling at the time. Yeah. Now, I didn't take up on it at the time because I didn't like the counsellor that was provided. Okay. And because of family members being in the emotional state they're in, without going into too long a story about it, I basically took charge of the whole situation and grew up overnight. Mm. So I put my own mental health on the back burner. Yeah. And I think he kind of expected me to come in and say, look, I need to talk to someone about that. Yeah. For a couple of years. However, like I said, it's been going on since before then. Yeah. And um, obviously medical notes have to be passed on to your GP. Yeah. So he knew about the issues I'd already spoken to someone about. Yeah. But because he can't, because he wasn't allowed to say, look, I've heard that you've been to so-and-so counsellor and disclosed this, shall yeah. we deal with it? He's kind of been sat there tapping his fingers waiting Wait. for me to come to him. And in reality, it took me almost 10 years. So I suppose, yeah, he is a good doctor. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, that's a slow uptake for me. <laughs> but yeah, so it's... If, if he had all that information and he didn't turn around and say something like that, I would have completely lost faith in the system. Yeah. So, on the other side, <laughs> it's a good job he did say what he said. Um, it was what you needed to hear. Yeah. I mean, offshoot of depression. You know, I've I've had a very close shave with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still battling with what I can only describe as a mild form of self-harm. And... Um, yeah, I mean, these are things that, you know... When you say you've had a, a close shave with alcoholism... When I, went, when I first went to my GP and I, and I said, look, you know, I've been feeling suicidal, what happens is, and I don't know if you or any of your listeners know this, when you go there, they give you an assessment form. Yes, I've had them. And they tell you to be as honest as possible with these questions and answers. And I decided that I was going to be as honest as possible because I was determined not to feel like this anymore. And so I did. And one of the questions is, how much alcohol are you consuming per week or per day or whatever? And when I took the form back into him, his response was, are these figures correct for the amount of alcohol? And I said, yes, they are. He said, well, if you'd have put down one more pint of beer, 
I would have to medically list you as being an alcoholic. Wow. And he said, the first step is to, to what we're going to do is for you to try with the help of your friends and family and me, um, without using medication, mm-hmm. is to cut down on your alcohol intake. And I'd had friends and family for 12 months telling me that I was drinking a lot. But I always shook it off because coming from, I don't See, my upbringing was, you know, you tried alcohol at a young <laughs> age and, you know, if you were wean, if you were weaned onto it, you'd never have a problem with yeah. it. Yeah. But the problem was, is, you know, I, when I went through a mental trauma in my late teens, because I like the taste of alcohol anyway, I mean, I have friends who drink it just to get drunk, but I yeah. actually enjoy the taste of a beer. Yeah. I um, do. You, uh, preaching to choir. Me too. <laughs> I do love a good pint. So then, so then you go home and you find that your fridge is full of beer and there's no food. Yeah. And there were times like that. And there were times where your friends and family would be going, how many have you had? You know, there's a lot of beer bottles in this bin. So it hadn't been up until you'd gone to the doctors that you'd twigged that... No, because I always defended myself. I always I always passed it off as being, you know, well, I can control myself. I only do it because I want to do it. Yeah. Which, in hindsight, was me lying to myself. Because when I actually passed him the note, yeah. And he said, you are one beer away from being an alcoholic. Mm. That was like someone slapping you around the face. Right. It's like a, a wake-up call. Exactly. Yeah. You know? That's like saying, well, I'll not go into it. But yeah, it was a big wake-up call. And what cemented that was when I tried to stop. Mm. You realised it was harder than you thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I ended up doing was going cold turkey. Oh, and wow. my, I told my mum, uh, I told my mum for, I basically, I opened up to my mum about everything one day, uh, just explained everything that had gone off, everything I was going through. And she came through and she said, right, if you want me to do this, let's do it. And we got a big, it was more than a box. Mm. We got three cardboard boxes and we emptied the house of any alcohol that was in the house. And we filled the three boxes. And I was amazed. And when you put it on the floor, I was amazed. Were you living on your own or was you living with your parents? I was living on my own. I was living on my own. Um, And she took it away. She said, I'm not going to bin it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to keep it. Right? Mm. And when you're ready, because obviously this this stuff's expensive as well. (laughs) And I'm a tight Yorkshire bloke. (laughs) Like you cannot bin a fifty pound bottle of whiskey. No. Oh yeah, I think oh, no. And it's nothing to do with the alcohol, it's it's to do with the cost. Oh definitely. <laughs> I'm looking at these three boxes going, This is a lot of money. Yeah. But at the same time it's a lot of money spent in the wrong place. Yeah. So, you know, she, she kept hold of it and I came to an agreement that when I started to get better mm. I could have some back and when I could be trusted to drink again, almost like a child. But you know, that was a big moment. Yeah. Clearing it out and going cold turkey. Uh, yeah. And it just cemented that I was doing the right thing because when you see three cardboard boxes full of alcohol and you live on your own and you haven't got any food in the fridge, yeah. you know you're doing something wrong. So, yeah. Um, it, I mean, something else that helped was, unfortunately, a friend of my mum's... Um, 
not long before I did this, mm -hmm. uh, actually passed away from alcoholism. Um, so she was really keen to help me out. Yeah. But the problem with depression is, as you'll know, is that at the time when I was, you know, when I was, when I heard that he'd passed away through alcoholism, yeah. and I'd actually seen this bloke at one stage, just before the end. Mm. At the time, even though I was also on the verge of alcoholism mm -hmm. and was battling d with depression, it did nothing to deter me from drinking at all. You 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 not made the relation between the two then. No, it's almost like me going into a hospital having a fag while someone you know is dying there of cancer yeah and that's exactly what i was doing i was stood there you know i not literally stood there having a beer but you know i would then go home and have a stiff drink yeah having just seen a bloke who's on his you know more people do that than realize though because they don't make that they, they go that well it's happening to somebody else it's not happening to me so it's okay they yeah. hadn't made that relation of well this is what happens if you do too much of it or you are that have got that well, got that far into it and it's like uh, people as you said people who smoke like they'll smoke like 20 a day and then go oh well I won't get cancer I've not had cancer yet I won't get cancer so it's like well no that's not how it works yeah. <laughs> it pops up at any point in time exactly yeah I mean going back to the suicide I mean a very close friend of mine um Someone he knew committed mm. suicide very publicly. I won't go into it because obviously it was very public and I don't want that person to be brought up. But Fair enough. It was, very, it was a very public suicide. And, and again, even though I saw the effect it had on other people, it still made no difference to me whilst I was going through my own dark days. I, I think when it's... I've, I've had similar thoughts way back when um, and the relation to well they had something to live for I don't but they obviously felt the same at the same time yeah it is it's it's so much it's so funny how we can distance ourselves from from what people are going through even though it mirrors exactly what we're going through yeah and I, I also believe it's the realization we don't want that we don't want to see it. It's like when people get angry and project their anger onto somebody else. It's like, oh, it's not me. It's them. They're just pissing me off. Yeah. <laughs> well, what made you angry in the first place? Well, what they're doing. Well, you do it too, love. Like, it's that same thing. <laughs> Stop grinding your teeth. But you grind your teeth. <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, it is that thing. Uh, but on a higher level. <laughs> on a much higher level, yeah. So, uh, so your journey, and, and I'm guessing it's still something you're working through as we speak now. Mm -hmm. um, how has it been over the last couple of years of trying to get yourself sorted? What's your experiences of your dealing with it yourself and the people around you deal, uh, managing with, with, with what's going on and yourself? It's been a long journey. And, um, I mean... Going back to the beginning, mm. like I said, going back around 10 years, it, oh, um, my first encounter with mental health actually happened uh, in college. Mm. I, unlike a lot of people who went to university, I went to college a second time. Mm. Um, 
Now, whilst I, whilst I was at there, mm-hmm. I was subject to um, sexual grooming by someone in a position of influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was another male. Um, and he took advantage of the fact that I was quite naive for my age uh, and also quite vulnerable and open about the fact that at the time I wasn't sure about my own sexuality. Well, I'm very sorry you experienced that. Um, and um, so, yeah, I was, I was subject to that for around two years. Mm. Um, it's important for me to say because yeah. I don't want to... Uh, sexual abuse victims can sometimes um, I, it's important for me to say that I was never raped okay by, but I did experience um, several techniques of grooming and advances yeah. that are wrong in any place whether it be a home or work environment especially someone who has power over another person yeah and even though I was older than 16 at the time mm-hmm due to the code of conduct yeah. for colleges and universities, mm. it should not have been happening. No. Um, and what happened was, I went to college the second time, so that was the first time mm-hmm. I had these bad experiences. <laughs> bad experiences. So I went to college the second time, and... Um, that must have took some strength to go back anyway. Well, I went to a different college. Oh, Okay. In a different town. <laughs> and when I got there, I was doing a different course. And the tutors there noticed that my behaviour was... I couldn't concentrate. Yeah. I'd avoid doing certain activ- certain work activities, like written work activities. Um, I was very good at... I was very good at distraction techniques for yeah. myself. And they basically recommended that I go and see um, uh, a counsellor. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went to see the counsellor at this said college mm. that I realised that's where my issues had started. That I realised just how wrong the situations I had been in for two years yeah. were. And I was going through that counselling mm-hmm. with this counsellor um, and this only started in the second year of the second time of college. Yeah. So I'm coming up to the end of my free counselling. Yeah. And during that period, that summer, that's when my dad passed away in an accident. Oh. Like so I'm like... just coming to terms with my own mental health issues regarding sexual grooming. Mm. When my dad passed away unexpectedly and I'd become the man of the household, quite literally... And unfortunately, I couldn't carry on seeing the counsellor because she can only work in college mm. due to yeah. the regulations. Yeah. And as of and and I can't remember if I've already mentioned, but then I passed up the opportunity to see the counsellor that was provided by the insurance company. Yeah, you said. Yeah. So I had. I just come to term, well was coming to terms with the fact that I had sexual grooming experiences and and that was what was affecting my mood and starting to affect my issues with alcohol. And then you hit with another tragedy. Then I hit with that and then I was kind of 
for a few months I was really clean and sober. Mm-hmm. And I think that was because I had to sort everything out for the funeral and stuff. Other people were more important than yourself at the time. And then after that, it was just a slow... Uh, no, it was a slow, but it was a slow downward spiral to essentially... A downward spiral of depression. You know, a textbook description of... of did, did people see you around you, like your mum and all that? Did they see you going down that spiral? They did, but because none of them knew what I'd already found out about. Okay. Well, not found out about, but... Realised. Because they didn't know what had happened to me two years before that. Right. They all kept saying, you need to go and see someone and talk about your dad. And yeah, that was a big part of my life, but that wasn't the underlying issue. Yeah. That wasn't the thing that was causing me issues with relationships. It wasn't the thing that was causing me issues with trust and with alcohol. So I kept shunning it off because I was like, I don't need to go and talk about my dad because I'm fine and I've dealt with it. Yeah. When in actual fact, I hadn't. And I did need to talk about my dad. <laughs> and then I went to see... Eventually, I decided I did need to go and talk about it. And I went to go and see another counsellor, this mm. time through my place of work. Uh, this is when I was starting to feel suicidal. Mm. But... And this is very... And this is why I think it's very important for people to realise who have never experienced depression themselves is... And also people going through it is... It's just as important for the person to be in the right place... To seek help. Yeah. As it is for someone to be there for them. Yeah. Because I went to go see another counsellor, but I was not in the right place to go and sort it out. So you I would purposely miss appointments or I would, you know or I'd find I was making myself busy and basically I I ended up dodging the subject. I ended up dodging the very thing I'd set up myself to do to get better. Yeah. And and that then takes me to when I went to the GP mm. around 12 months later. Yeah. Finally, I was at a place where I'd gone down the rabbit hole. People around me knew I was going down the rabbit hole. Mm. And now it was time for me to recognise yeah. and truly believe that I wanted to be out of it. That's another thing, is, is, is belief that you do want out because... A lot of people are like, oh, well, and I've seen it horrendously myself where they go, oh, well, what's the point? You're just going to be back there. And it's like, no, you each and every time you have to believe that they because you don't. Sometimes people do slip and that's completely normal and natural. Nobody ever gets it the first time. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing is like, it's not failing. It's just trying and seeing what works for you. And. And it takes more than one try to figure out... It takes more than one try to figure out how to do a skill, let alone manage your own mind. Yeah, and I think it was a big shock, especially to my friends, because obviously not everyone knows about the sexual stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a big shock to my friends when I told them that I was suicidal. Mm. Because my friend had already... You know, we knew someone who had taken yeah. their own life. Um, but also because... I know everyone deals with things in a different way, but I never took a day off work. Mm. I never took a day off work from my depression. I never had a breakdown at work. I never, well, not one that would seem out of the ordinary. Yeah. You know, I always made a point, I always made a point of outwardly to everyone around me, 
you know, day to day, I was doing everything I'd always done. I was going to work. You, you had know, a good game face. Exactly. Um, and I know people deal with things differently, but there is a stage, or in my experience, there is a stage of depression where you go, I'm sick of depression now, but then you stay in bed and don't do anything all day. Yeah. You know, I eventually got to a point of depression where I was like, no, I really am. Mm. And I really will not let this get me now. And I have to proactively tell someone and proactively say, you need to help me. Because yeah. if not, this time I'm not going to stop. And yeah, it's interesting that you said that you do see people like that. I mean, I'm not going to judge because everyone deals with things differently. No, it's... And it's quite often you hear about cases in the media where they go, well, it sounded like everything was fine. The, the, there is there is many ways that people manage and cope with depression and I've known people to constantly reach out and because it's not worked or whatever and they have slipped back but it doesn't mean to say that they didn't generally want that help they yeah. just that that pathway didn't work for them there are there are loads of different pathways to get help there are loads of different pathways to figure out what's best for you and just because one way didn't work doesn't mean you should just give up on that person or oh well what's the point they don't you know they're not doing it for themselves actually they are doing it for themselves it's just that's not the way they can do it for themselves give them a hand finding a different way yeah it's funny because I found myself at one point during before I was diagnosed with depression mm. and was taking medication at one point I would find myself having conversations with random people I worked with or with random people that I'd met, I don't know, on a train. Mm. And you'd get onto the subject. And it was like therapy for the two of you. Yeah. And you'd tell each other your life story within 10 minutes and then you might not see each other again. But I eventually realised that, although it relieved some of the feelings I was having at the time, mm. long term, these random people I was telling my life story to wasn't doing me any good at all. Yeah. All I was doing was reliving the same story over and over. Just repeating yourself. So, you know, that became a thing. I mean, I've, I've found the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. um, they were, you know, they do what they say on the tin, but it wasn't for me. Yeah. You know, I found the, at the time I had a workplace and they had someone, I found them. Again, that didn't quite work, which I've already gone into. Yeah. Everyone has their own path. Yeah. You know, um... I'm at the point now where I recognise my own mood myself. You've become self-aware. Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, now it's a different challenge. Now, mm. For example, uh, I arranged to be on the register to go see a counsellor to finally put to bed the... Mm sexual grooming and abuse that I had when I was younger. However, the waiting list to see a counsellor was 12 to 18 months. Wow, that's a long time. Then, about 15 months in, mm. not long ago, I got a phone call from that authority saying that due to cuts yeah. in the local authority, that the waiting list has been extended to another 18 months. That's ridiculous. So the waiting list for someone who is clinically diagnosed as suicidal mm. on a high dosage of medication for depression 
to see a counsellor about being a sexual abuse victim is currently in our lo- in the area that I I I'm in. Postcode is, again. Is um well, eighteen months times two. What's that? Thirty six months. Mm-hmm. Twelve, twenty four. What's that? Three years. Three years. That's that's shocking, and <laughs> that's absolutely shocking. I mean, I've I've seen the figures for mental health and the amount of or should I say the amount, the little that they get is unreal and. When it comes to suicide and, and 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 these are the kind of figures that show shockingly like what can happen if you don't help somebody's somebody's mental health can sometimes be a lot more important they're out of a physical health things that can damage you very quickly but mental health causes more damage to not just your mind and your body than most diseases out there and the family around you exactly it's like a ripple effect yeah when when somebody as you spoke about people close to you that have have gone down the suicide route and when you calculated it yourself how many people it would affect yeah. i know i've 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 thought that myself what i've been in dark days of well who is it going to affect yeah and this was before i had children yeah it's like well who is it going to affect how many ripples are we going to get before i can calculate as it's all right well well we've got too many ripples at the moment. How can we cut it down? So it's only a few ripples that won't affect too many people. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because as as you've noticed, I have quite a good doctor. My doc, my GP specialises in in um, depression. Yeah. Which again is a lottery. Yeah. I just happen to have one, but even to someone who greatly cares about this, um, he turned around and said, "The thing is, is you've got three options." And depending on which option you take also depends on which other aspects of life here it affects. Mm. For example, if you wanted to go see a counsellor and you go and arrange it in your own time, like mm. I have done, then I don't necessarily have to make a record of it. If you want me through the NHS to organise one, because mm. of your, you being suicidal, mm. right, that would have to go in your medical record, which would, could then potentially uh, affect life insurance and holiday insurance quotes later on. Wow. When you have to do insurance quotes. Mm. Right? So depending on which medical treatment you choose depends on, effectively, a financial decision later down the line. Well, And that's... then you've got the option of CBT mm. uh, therapy, or you can go for a psychologist or a counsellor yeah. for specific areas. So, as I briefly mentioned earlier, is I, um, and this is only something I admitted to myself recently, I do self-harm uh you can probably see on my arms that i have scabs and scars yeah and that's because i pick my skin and for a long time Mm. i failed to recognize that it's a form of self-abuse uh but it is and what flagged that up to me was that i used to work with children yeah and children started asking me, what are those spots on your arms? Mm. And children are very honest and very yeah. observant. Oh, yeah, they are. They don't think, well, I'm not going to ask that question. They just ask, ask it. it. No filter. And when people start asking you, what are all those spots and scabs on your arms? And where have they come from? And you suddenly have to think, well, I've picked at that skin for three months. Mm. And it started off as nothing and now it's half an inch wide. Yeah. You realise what you're doing to yourself. 
So I admitted to the GP that that's where it is. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, me picking my skin, the worst I can do is get an infection. On the other hand, it's more an aesthetic thing. Is, is it more for... It's a, it's a physical manifestation of me not being able to deal with stress. So it's like a little relief every time you do pick at your skin. From, it's, I'm still coming to terms with it, but the thing is, like, I like to, I like my skin to feel nice and smooth, right? And if I feel a bump or a blackhead, mm. I feel like I have to get rid of it. I understand that one. However, it's completely stupid behaviour because the minute that you pick at it, you make it worse. worse. And then you need to get rid of that and then you make it worse. And then it gets to a point where I've got one here on my elbow and that is now effectively an open wound. I've uh, done the same with my cuticles for years. Anytime I get uh, anxious, upset, I will pick... And I will notice that something's imperfect, like, you know, a bit of skin's coming off and then I'll pick it. But then I'll, I'll feel happy that I've picked it, so I've got to pick it some more and then I'll leave it a scab. And I've went to have a manicure for the first time and then there's like, why, what's wrong with your fingers? Why are they? Why do they look sore? Don't they hurt? And I'm just like, no, no, they're fine. And I'm picking. I'm picking in between yeah. it. So I, I, I get mine's, for me... I'll sit there and I'll pick. Whenever I get an anxious thought, I will pick up my finger, my cuticles, and it'll get sore and it'll bleed, and it yeah. never stops me. So I, I completely understand that. And it's not that, unless, and you know, I do. Want, I would do want to make this clear because it's not necessarily the pain. No. It's not the bleeding. No. Nope. You know, both of those are an inconvenience. Oh, I don't. Yeah. I take any pleasure in pain. You know, bleeding is messy and it proves what you've done to other people. <laughs> Is that it's that wanting to make yourself better? It's that perfection thing. Mm. That's where it is for me, and it's funny because to some people it, it doesn't even come across as self abuse. No, you know you might tell someone and go, "Well, you're not taking a knife to yourself, are you? You're not burning yourself." That's and that's, I go, but that's no. But on the other hand, it. on the other hand, look how many scars I've got. Yeah. You know, and like you said, that goes back to me being self aware. It's something that I'm struggled to handle at the minute. Um, and because I've tried cutting back on smoking, mm. and because I've tried cutting back on alcohol, which I have very successfully cut back on alcohol. Well done. Um, it's the thing that you can do that no one notices. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand. And that. I've been doing it while I've been sat here to you. I know, I've, I've watched you do it. And do you know what? While I've been sat here, I've been picking my cuticle. But a couple of people <laughs> around me know I do it now. And I've admitted to them. And I have actually told them, if you see me do it, you need to tell me to stop. So shall I tell you to stop if I see you do it? <laughs> no, not today. But, <laughs> but um, and they do. And it annoys me when they do. <laughs> like, don't you tell me what to do. But I've told them to tell me to do that. But... But going back to what I was originally saying was you have these choices about your treatment. Mm. And it's like, well, you could choose CBT for your picking mm. or you could choose counsellor for your mental health. So you've now got a choice. You're now cho effectively choosing your own treatment with different effects. And I chose to tackle the underlying issues. Well, that's a good point. By going for a counsellor. Yeah. The thing is is that by choosing for a counsellor off my own back without going through the local authority directly, mm. self-referral, that's what the word I was looking for. 
by self-referring, mm. you're on the waiting list slightly longer, but you stay off the insurance company's radars. So you, you're helping and hindering. But I'm also it? not getting any help from my mild form of self-harming, mm. all of which is a three-year waiting list, of which time I'm playing, let's see how the medication works game. Right. There's a lot, a lot of uh, balls up in the air on that one then. It feels a lot simpler than it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because I'm aware and well, I'm determined to get better. You've got more of an understanding of yourself now. See, the thing is, I used to be, I used to work in schools and I used to work with children and, and I've done a lot of training, similar training to, I work with special needs children and it's, you have to learn about triggers and self-harm and managing stress and, and so you recognise them in other people. And then when you recognise them in yourself, mm. it's kind of a double-edged sword because you then have the awareness of what you're doing, yeah. but you have, you don't have the control. Mm. You know, there's that very famous quote, I don't know where it comes from, but it's probably ancient, you know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, when you take that ignorance as a way, that's bloody painful stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but going back, I think I had a podcast with another, an earlier podcast that you did mm. and someone mentioned about the effects of the medication mm. and I actually had a conversation with another lorry driver the other day about the medication Yeah. and, uh, it's funny because for me, it's been a good help. Yeah. It's given me the clarity of mind. Yeah. It stopped at one point I was having terrible nightmares. Mm. It allows me to sleep. Yeah. So it allows me to sleep. I'm not as down on energy. And it's given me the clarity of mind. And it keeps my mood very at a plateau. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I don't suddenly flick and get really angry over nothing. See, that's the thing is um, when, when I have spoken to people um, on the podcast, um, I think you're actually referencing Zoe, um, she had bad experiences with medication, yeah. and um, but as I said then, there is a lot of people that need the medication, like yourself, to help get to that point to be able to work on yourself, to be able to go for the next next level. Yeah, and I'm on uh, the dose I'm on at the minute. This is getting a bit more personal, but the dose I'm on at the minute means that it allows me to stay on a plateau. Mm. It cuts off my nightmares and it allows me to get sleep because before this I used to stay up all night, I couldn't sleep, couldn't concentrate, it yeah. cuts all that out. However, one of the very common side effects of mm. this certain drug at this dosage is it also means that um, I put on weight very easily, Okay. which does my self-esteem no good. Mm. Um, I seem tired all the time, but I'm not. Mm. And I've completely lost my sex drive, mm. which doesn't help my personal relationship. However, if I reduce the dosage, mm. you get the reverse effects. Yeah. So my sex drive comes back, mm. you know, I feel a bit more energetic, but all of a sudden I have to put up with the nightmares again. And lack of sleep. And lack of sleep. So. And the nightmares and the lack of sleep and the lack of concentration, in, you know obviously come down to the underlying issues yeah. which having spent 10 years to tackle on my own hasn't done anything yeah. yeah so 
it's you know, got to, you what got, do you trade off? It's a lesser of two evils that you've got to pick. Which you know, one and, you and then, you know, I mean, I'm really fortunate that I'm in a fantastic relationship at the minute. Mm. But if you're meeting people, mm. how do you explain without going into your life story why in your mid-20s mm. you're not exactly a rampant rabbit? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yep, I get that. Especially from a man's point of view. Especially from a bloke. Yeah. Because there is this stereotypical perception that blokes want it all the time. Mm. I mean, what is weird is that you might feel it, Mm. but how do I put it? Nothing's affected physically. Yeah. (laughs) The problem is the mood. Yes. And this is where this... uh, this is where a woman will go, I'm just not in the mood. Right, got you. Which a man can never, in my experience, men have never, men have never understood. <laughs> yeah. But now I completely <laughs> understand what a woman means by that now. I can speak for all women when we say, we don't want you to go for all that just to understand us. <laughs> we, we, yes, but uh, it's nice to know that men do get it at some point, just sadly through the wrong way of understanding. But I actually met another bloke the other day and he was going through the same Mm. experience with the same drug yeah and he said the problem is is this medication is doing me a lot of good yeah the side effects in some ways are counteracting it yeah so i'm putting on weight and i've lost my sex drive Mm. both of these things especially for the male for men for men yeah for the male gender is is very damaging to the self-esteem oh yes massively because they're the the two most important things, especially for somebody who is in, in their mid twenties or younger, or to be fair, older and they're just trying to get out there again, you don't know. But from a from a, a, a woman's view of seeing what men are like or what we what we not to generalise, but what men women view of men is you're kinda horn dogs and your looks are important to you. And yeah. and to take that away can be very damaging because I think also to have the sex drive also gives you that bit of confidence as well as in like gives you that bit of cocky confidence well it's well known that you know uh, the sex sex is an activity Mm. is a huge rush of endorphins a huge rush of (laughs) self-esteem I mean why wouldn't it be you know um and it's also pretty healthy. <laughs> you burn off a lot of energy if you... <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. So if if that's not happening, then you're also missing out on that good rush. Yeah. Um, and then, personally, I've got that added pressure of if I'm not in a good place, mm. sometimes these issues regarding the grooming mm. can affect my mood in the bedroom. Yeah someone could say the wrong phrase unknowingly completely innocently and it could bring back an awful memory flashbacks and and triggers and stuff and then you know things go downhill yeah you know or someone could you know just slightly brush you in a way yeah that is supposed to be affectionate but would would trigger a flashback so yeah when i suppose when you when when i come to think about it you know i'm I find I find sex is an activity now. Mm. Um, unless <laughs> I don't know, I find it quite stressful. Well, it, it, just talking about it, how how you describe it for yourself sounds quite stressful in general. 
because it's such a, a conflict of ideas and concepts of what you should be and, and how you should be towards what you are and what benefits you as an individual rather than what would benefit in general. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not something I would, de- you know, massively go into with my partner, although we do have a fantastic relationship, so I might do, but <laughs> you don't want to put too much pressure on your partner either. No. And you don't want them to be worried that, that you're worried. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, sometimes there's a lot going off when really you just should be enjoying each other. Yeah. Um... And I think out of everything that I've gone through over the last 10, 10 or so years, that's the thing that frustrates me the most. Is even when I'm having a fantastic day and it's as though I'm not even going through any of that. Yeah. If that crops up during a very intimate moment, everything's thrown to the wall. And it's the fact that something that happened so long ago that on a scale of 1 to 10 of how bad things can be in that department yeah. wasn't a 10 mm. because I don't want to be playing a violin, mm. you know. Um, but the fact that what did happen to me can still affect me to this day in an intimate setting mm. frustrates me. And I wish I could turn it off. I wish I could turn it off. I think anybody in your situation would wish they could just turn it off. And I've... I've I've sadly, as we spoke about earlier, sadly I've known women who have been in situations of rape or sexual assault in some way and they have been triggered by something very, very innocent in a very intimate situation and that's it. Everything from, and it could have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but it's like that and it's like as though it's just happening here and now and they're so frustrated that it could, something like that, could happen and it's not even thought about until it happens and part of the reason why I relied on drink so much at the time was because I struggled to sleep Mm. and it got to the point where I could only drop off to sleep if I'd had a few to drink Mm. but I mean something I've not mentioned Mm. is that between the period of all this starting Mm. And me seeing my GP. Yeah. There was actually an incident where a woman took advantage of me. Okay. Um, I was on holiday. I don't. I won't go into too much detail, but I was on holiday and I was intoxicated. We'd had a snog earlier on in the day. Mm. And a dr- it was like, it was a drunken snog and I thought that was that. Yeah. Thought I was never going to see this girl again. Yeah. She then... This wasn't even anywhere near the hotel. Okay. She then found out where I was staying, along with my mates, and waited there until I came back from whatever we were doing that night. Okay. Very late in the morning. Made the hotel staff feel very bad, because obviously, oh, look, she's been waiting for you and all this, and spun it as though we were an item. Oh, Wow. Uh, and then made me feel bad, as if to say, you know, I've been waiting all this time for me, are you really going to kick me out on the street? Wow. This was really late in the morning, I, I almost imagine. daylight. Yeah. And I said, look, and bear in mind, I'm completely, <laughs> I'm, I'm not with it. You've you know? been drinking all I've night, you know. I was like, look, come up and sleep on the settee, but nothing's happening. Yeah. Okay, nothing's happening. 
And I woke up and she was actually on top of me. Wow. That, that. And let me just say this. This can happen to men, as you hear this. It's not just things that happen to women. So we, I, I really want to squish the idea of it can't happen to men because it can, as, as you're living proof, that it can happen to men. And it's not okay. It's not okay for anybody to take advantage of you at, in any given situation. Um, no, and the thing that annoys me, and you read this on forums all the time, is, well, if a, if a man can physically perform, oh. then it's not right. And quite frankly, that is a load of shod. That is, because anyone who's got a, a penis <laughs> will be able to tell you that he has a mind of its own. I, that's one of the most annoying. Even thinking about that, that people saying that. Morning glory <laughs> is the biggest proof that that is not the case. I've had, I've had several serious relationships, and I quite happily understand that. Yes, when it decides it's awake, it's awake. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I can laugh about it now, but. And I think I kind of put it in a different category in my head because I was intoxicated at the time. I was on holiday. And it was a woman who I found attractive anyway. But mm. I had already made it clear that it wasn't going to happen. Mm. Um, when it was happening, I realised it was happening without protection. Mm. Oh. So the first thing I had to do when I get back was get, get tested. tested. Yeah. And I then told the nurse what had happened. And she was like... And these are the very words from the NHS nurse... Right, at the local okay, centre. I'm prepared. She said, if you were a woman telling me the same story, I would be telling you that that is rape. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, oh, I can feel the anger bubbling up inside me when you said Those that. Those were her actual words. Yeah. And she said, you do not feel bad for what happened. It was not your fault. You need to get checked. We'll make sure everything's all right. Mm. But um, but essentially, that's what it is. Yeah. However, she opened with, "If you were a woman, this would be rape." So that's somehow, what I upon, yeah. somehow, it is, but it isn't because I'm the bloke. Yeah. And, and therefore, I got my tests and was shoved out the door. Yeah. So ten years earlier, I'd had a long-term bad experience with a homosexual man. Yeah. And then flash forward a few years and I have another bad experience with a woman. Mm. And then obviously, and then I'm, you know, I, and then we bring, bring me up to now I <laughs> where I don't have a sex drive and the whole thing seems very complicated and stressful <laughs> I, well it's understandable to be honest I think it'd be the same for me I mean that's a lot to handle for one person when it comes to the, the, the idea of sex so I've got to ask are you yes you say you're frustrated about not having a, a libido as such but are you con- Content for now for not having a libido because of the, the, the pluses that you get out of the tablets. <laughs> what I do, mm. and I am not recommending this, and a GP would not recommend this. Okay. 
I have a long term really, uh, long distance relationship, and if I'm in a good place mm. and I know I'm going to be seeing my partner, mm. I will forego my tablets a few days before. Okay, I can see why you're not advising people to do this. And I am not advising people to do this. Okay. But in order for me to perform, and I know I'm in an okay place myself, mm. I will forego a few days of my tablets. So that I can, I don't want to call it a dirty weekend, but so that I can then enjoy an intimate relationship. Yeah. However, if I'm not in a good place, mm-hmm. and this doesn't mean that I don't want to, but yeah. if I know that mentally I it would need to more. stay on an even keel. It would cause you more harm to come off for a couple of days. I will else. not do that. Mm. And if it happens, it happens. If it's spur of the moment, that's great. That's but a- if it doesn't happen... I mean, I've already said I'm in a long-distance relationship. It is hard. Yeah. It is hard on the relationship. Despite the fact that my partner understands why I'm struggling, Yeah. it does not make it any easier. That's also showing a fair lot of self-awareness to be able to do that. Like, that should be giving credit to yourself because to have the awareness to know if you can manage it or can't manage it, even if it's just for a couple of days to, to, to be with your, your missus, that shows a hell of a lot of self-awareness to know the difference between the two. Yeah, but it feels like a curse. <laughs> I, I can understand that, but that's quite a massive step to be able to know that you can manage yourself for a couple of days with the sole purposes of, of, of being with your partner. But obviously knowing that you'll be going back on and you'll be safe and all that lot to yourself and in and, and the situation, but also knowing that what's what is good for you and what's not as in going you know what i want to do this but i know at the moment it's just not a good idea that's a lot of self-awareness to be able to know the difference but what you have to also have to remember is with a lot of antidepressants is if you drink alcohol whilst on antidepressants it cuts the effect of the antidepressants out by half okay so if for example you're on 40 milligrams of an antidepressant yeah you have a drink one drink that will cut the effect of that by half. You're effectively only taking 20 milligrams. Right. Right. So, but you shouldn't mix alcohol with antidepressants anyway, potentially because of the T's Mm. and C's and whatever. Yeah, yeah. However, so what I'm saying is, if it were to happen and I was like, oh, I feel like a drink tonight, then you might, (laughs) this is going back to self-awareness, I could not forego my tablets and think, oh, I'll have a couple of drinks. But, but it doesn't work that quickly. It doesn't work that quickly. But I also. But know. also, it's better for me to not have a drink because of my problem with drink. So if I'm off the tablets and I decide to have a drink, it can lead down a slippery slope. So I do micromanage. That's a hell of a lot of self awareness. That is a lot. Like, you, yeah, you call it micromanage, but to be able to micromanage, that's a hell of a lot of self awareness. To be able to know all these little bits, take into account and, and basically weigh up what is best for you. Because essentially, yes, what's best for you is best for your missus. So whether or not that's to take the tablets or not to, to be with her. Yeah. You're still knowing that taking, if you didn't, if you did take the tablets, it's still best for you and best for her. Because then you would be in a better mood to be with her on a day-to-day basis anyway. All that micromanaging that you're doing is incredible amounts of self-awareness. 
<laughs> but on the other hand, I find it very stressful. It, oh, <laughs> and I, as, I, as a byproduct, I end up picking my spaghetti. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. Like to, it would be. I, I, I understand that one completely. But that is an 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 amount of self awareness that not many people have in general. Let alone with all the issues that you're dealing with inside. You should give yourself a lot of credit for that because you've took on all that to understand yourself, to know, and to work out. Just simply to be like an av- the average person. But you've took all that self-awareness in within yourself to know what is best for you, so best for the person that you love. That's a lot, and you should give yourself credit for that. I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is as well, I've kind of done with sex what I did with alcohol. Mm. And what I mean by that is there was a time, mm. <laughs> like alcohol, where I turned to it all the time, mm. Where, and this has been in the media over recent years, mm. is where I turned to porn. porn. Yeah. And there was a time where I could only use porn. Mm. Uh, and I was using it on a very regular basis. <laughs> we don't want to go into the details, <laughs> but it was too regular. Yeah. And then, but what I'm finding now is, because I've become to the point where I was like, I want to... <laughs> I don't want to be like this anymore. Yeah. I want to be able to enjoy sex like I should be able to mm. without the use of porn. Is I try not to watch it anymore. Okay. Now what happens is I'm at a weird stage at the minute where I'm essentially cold turkey. Okay. From any form of sex, whether it be porn or physical. And this is a lot of information. <laughs> but It's okay. So recently I've had no libido. Okay. And I've also had no libido for porn either. Okay. So I've been completely cold turkey for... Mm. Definitely for this month. Okay. And... I don't know. I don't know how I'm going with that. I know that it's done me some good. That is a positive. But I don't know if it's a long-term thing. But... Yeah, I definitely find that my issues with a sexual relationship with another person is what underlines everything. And obviously... That's... And my issues with my sexuality underlines everything. Yeah. Because the thing is, before I went to college and everything happened, I actually remember standing in front of my parents going, I'm bisexual. Okay. Oh, really, are you? Yeah. Well, you kissed a bloke and you liked it. <laughs> Which was basically what it was. Yeah. Then all that shit happened. And then... And I don't want people to take this the wrong way. Because okay. obviously I'm... No stranger to kissing another bloke. But I went through a point of not wanting to be around any homosexual bloke. There was just something that made me very uncomfortable. And it wasn't because of any stereotyping or anything like that. It was because of the situation I'd been in. And that's understandable. And then I went through a situation... See, I'm remembering stuff as well. See, then I went through a phase where I was single again. And this Mm. is just before I met my now partner. And my ex-partner was very supportive, but never liked that side of me. Yeah. Um, I don't mean... uh, I don't mean she was homophobic, but it was like, you're with me, therefore it's a male-female relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was never really... For example, if mm. we're watching a film, right, and you go, oh, he's fit, and I'd be like, yeah, he's all right, isn't he? Mm. I couldn't say that. 
Oh, okay. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Couldn't bring up the fact that I had those feelings. Yeah. So when I became single again, I went out and thought, right, I'm on my antidepressants. I've been through some counselling. I'm single again. Mm. Let's give the gay scene another go. Yeah. Let's, I'm in a healthier place. Let's try and cement some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like I'm playing ball game with my own sexuality, but that's what I did. And You're just trying to figure yourself out. I'm remembering so much because I haven't put it at the back of my mind for ages. But I went on a date with a bloke and I explained to him I'd had a bad experience and the date ended with him in my car and him more or less begging me to give him a blowjob. Must have really liked you. I think I could have been anyone. Mm. And so... They ended in, in a way where I was then doing something that I didn't, wasn't really ready for, mm. but I was doing it to please the other person. Right. Sorry, I got a bit graphic. But it's, um, all right. it's oh no, I'm all open. You're, but I've just remembered talking to you that when I was young, I'm, I'm talking like fourteen now, fifteen, mm. and this is in the very as you know, being you know in your early thirties. Mm, yeah. The internet was a different place. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and webcams and webcam sites oh, right. were, not, were not monitored. <laughs> and I used to be... I used to go on these webcam sites as a, as a, as a teenager. Uh, especially... On, uh, with other men. Mm. It's, okay. it's funny when you come to realise, like... When you go back and you start thinking over things and connecting the dots, things started a lot earlier than you realised. Than I realised. And yeah. also, I was probably in situations I shouldn't have been in. But you go back to the internet and, you know, you go back 15 years, which mm. is what it nearly is. Mm. And technology moves so fast. And our parents at the time didn't know. Oh, God, no. We didn't know. <laughs> you know, thing, people would using the internet in ways that people never thought the internet would be used. They still are as well. Well, exactly. And and so and so, you know And it was It wasn't even talked about, it wasn't given a name or anything. No. Nope. So when when I look back, you know, things started from a much younger age than I probably give it credit well, give it credit for that's the wrong thing to say, isn't it? But realised. And it is definitely the underlying issue. And I've been really glad that a lot of things have come out in the media over the last five years. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of high-profile cases, people who have been found out. Um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of that kind of stuff that's come out. However, the flip side is, mm. and before we end the podcast, this is something I want to get out there. The flip side of all this coming out to light yeah. is how it affects the ordinary person, the ordinary man who's trying to help others. Yeah. So I was a man and I worked in care work and yeah. I worked in schools. Yeah. And I did this for about seven years. Mm. In all that time, the people I met, the other blokes I met, at least half of them, if not more, mm -hmm. when I got talking to them, had 
being falsely accused of something themselves. Yeah. And what two of those people had had to move house. Wow. And move jobs. Because, and in all these cases, these are proven false allegations. Anything from sexual misconduct mm -hmm. to merely saying the wrong thing. Mud sticks, so don't it? And the thing is, when you're a man working in childcare or social care at the minute, all this is brought to light. It is in the forefront of your mind. Yeah. It's someone you know. It's someone you work with. Mm. It's someone that puts themselves in a position where they can be around the people yeah. that they want to perpetrate. So you feel like you're under watch the whole time. And you are. Mm -hmm. When you work in social care, as a man, mm. it is advice for a woman too. But as for a man, it is emphasised that you, if you're ever alone with an, uh, an individual in care, mm. whether that be... I don't know. A vulnerable person. Yeah. If you're ever alone with a vulnerable person, you should be in an open space where others can see you. Or yeah. if it's private, in a room where there's a window or a door with a window, or the door is left open. It's like doctors. Uh, when I go for a checkup, I've got to, they have to go bring somebody else in if it's a man. I used to go and I used to tell staff when I, when I was leaving the room which room I was going to. Mm -hmm. It became so regular in my routine that at the time with my partner at home, I used to go, I'm just going to the toilet. I used to tell everyone around me that I was going to the toilet. Not because it was polite, but because I knew, I needed people to know where like, I was going to be when like I was out of the room. Like a child. Like school, I'm going to the toilet. I need to go to the toilet. Or like, you know, you need to announce where you're going. I've only stopped doing that recently. But what strikes me is that, yes, it is a good thing that this stuff has come out. Yeah. Okay. However, the two things that frustrate me about the UK media regarding sexual abuse with vulnerable people at the minute. One is that there are cases of female perpetrators. Yep. And they do not get half as much coverage. No. And the other thing is there is no real group or legal protection or union. Mm -hmm. specifically for men working with vulnerable people themselves. Yeah. So, for example, if I wanted to be protected in any way legally from any false allegation, I would have to join a union. Mm -hmm. And that's more than likely a generalised union. Yeah. Right? But the thing is, is a generalised union is just that. It's general. Yeah, it's not specific for that situation. I mean, there isn't really a union for care workers anyway, or teaching staff which is lacking in this country. Oh, yeah. But when you're a man, especially in your early 20s, and you're working around kids, and you get a false accusation, right? Mm. You barely know, you know, most most lads that age barely know how to go and get a mortgage, mm. let alone how to get legal aid because they've been falsely accused of doing something unimaginable. Uh, yep. How does that affect you? Yeah, it's, it's going to stay with you. I say mud sticks, even if it's a false one, mud sticks. And it will, if it doesn't stick within people, it sticks within your own mind. And I think it's horrendous that that kind of stuff happens. And it's reason why men don't talk about it. It's the reason why there isn't, there is such a hatred towards men that, and it does, this is my just my opinion, there is such a hatred towards men and what they do that they, because of stories that you see of that kind of stuff happening, I mean, 
everybody knows the Harvey Weinstein stuff and everything that's gone on like that. And um, it's it's such a hatred for men that there is millions of innocent men that are getting trodden through the mud just because a few decide to be evil. It is one of the few places, and I firmly believe this, it is one of the few places in a modern British society where sexism exists the other way towards men, right? And I'll give you a prime example, okay? Well, there's two examples I could give. But the, the one of the examples is, I once applied to be a nanny abroad. Yeah. Right? The company who was providing this service slash experience would first send out a brochure before asking for an application form. I was on their website and applied for a brochure mm. to be staff, right? I received, and I've still got this printed off as a reminder as to how much I was going to beat this stereotype. I received a very well-worded, probably legally-aided email that there was no demand for male nannies in this certain country. Therefore, they would not send me a brochure. This company would not even send a man a brochure for the job. I find this really frustrating. From your own experiences and knowing how people can abuse that power, and then you're going, well, let's change that view because I've known what damage it can cause people, but not all people do that. And from somebody who's been through that, when to I, be able to to show the strength to go, you know what? No, we're not going to stick to that. So you've also, let me just say, that takes a lot of, from you to be able to go, I've been through that experience, but don't treat everybody the same <laughs> because you've been through that experience, but you you took that in yourself to internalise that and go, no, that's, that's that. That's separate. That doesn't say that sits for everybody. When I first got my qualifications to work with children, Right. First of all, going to college to get those qualifications was hard. Because mm. I firmly believed what the society had told me to believe, mm. which says a man cannot get a job working with children and I won't go out to the college course. Mm. They welcomed me with open arms. I was the first man on their course in 10 years. Wow. You know, they wanted to show me off like a prize pig. <laughs> <laughs> but when I first got my qualifications, I was in a local Chinese takeaway. Uh, the take. Other takeaways are available. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a local takeaway and I was picking up the food. Mm. And behind me was someone stood in a local nursery mm. uniform. Yeah. And I said, how is it over there? Because it was a new nursery. Are there any jobs going? And the response I got from this person was, yeah, but why do you want to know? I explained that I was newly qualified and I was looking for a job. And, you know, and obviously it was local. And this person said, I think it's wrong for men to work anywhere near children. I would never employ a man in my nursery if I could. And I don't understand why you want to do it. Wow. I was shocked and didn't know what to say. Because yeah. this time I'm still in my teens. Takes my breath back, let alone yours. And I, this time I was still in contact with the nursery that I did my work experience at. Mm. Lovely women, lovely. And... I said, oh, I've had this experience for the takeaway. And they're like, what was, what did she look like? You know, describe whatever. This woman who had said this to me turned out to be the manager of that nursery. Oh. Wow. 
Well. So, I, you know, in, in my experience, I do firmly believe that although all this stuff that has been good, mm. that has come out, and a lot of people have finally been put away that should be put away. Yeah. On the flip side of that, we now have, along with issues we haven't got time to talk about today about how men are treating modern British mm. society, but we now, f- I do believe, have a true sexism against men, uh, especially when it comes to working anywhere near children. And if you're anyone like me that wants to make a difference because you don't want to happen to them what happened to you, mm. it's a bit of a it is very face. hard. And that is one of the reasons why after seven or eight years I decided to stop. Because I no longer had the energy to fight my own battles in my head and, and fight I, the sexism and stereotyping at the workplace. you got you got to weigh up which one's better. And obviously you've got to put yourself first, really, haven't you? You've, if you're already dealing with enough. But let me just say, like, to anybody that's listening, to know that somebody who'd been through it and they want to make a difference, please don't shun anybody. You don't, for one, you also don't know the story. And for two... Anybody that wants to make a difference in that viewpoint, Jesus Christ, we should be handing them like everything they need, not shunning them because of their gender or background or whatever. We should be like, we want to change this point of view. And as I say, for you who has been through that experience, I mean, you deserve a medal for even trying because somebody in your experience could have easily gone down the other route. So to know that you wanted to make a difference because this stuff has happened to you and you know what how it's mentally affected you and to know that you wouldn't want that to be onto somebody else and still do your best to fight it but then obviously know that you've got to help yourself more for even trying for so long. You deserve a lot of credit for that. And in my, in my opinion, you deserve a lot of credit for that. That takes a hell of a lot of strength. I mean, that... I mean, you sat here, and I can tell you're uncomfortable a little with me saying this, but you've 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 managed self awareness to be able to manage yourself. You've managed to do your best to try and make a change, even if it didn't work the way you'd like it. You still tried, despite all of what was going on and everything that you've gone through. You've managed to battle against, as you say, almost alcoholism, but. You probably was on that route. It's just you battled that. You've gone through a lot and you're still here today. You've still managed to give yourself self-awareness, managed to get through, have a, a good relationship with, with, with your partner. You're, you, you sound like you're doing very well with your current job. You deserve to give yourself a lot more credit than I can see that you're currently giving yourself. Because you do. The, well, prob- the problem at the minute is when you have a bad couple of days. Oh, God, yeah. It's no long. It's not just a bad couple of days because, and I sound so cliche. I do. I sound so cliche, and I hate that I can't sound cliche. Oh, we all have those. Don't worry. But you feel like you're struggling in your own head every day, and something can happen, and it'll seem small to the other person, and something can happen, and it can just be someone. It can just be like a bit of road rage. Yeah. Or it can be someone. Calling you by the wrong profession title. Yeah. I have had that in the past. Or you can have something like a shop being out of stock of something that you purposely went out to buy. Yes. It can be something really small, <laughs> and that small thing will send me over the edge. Yeah. But that's 
To be fair, I, again, I'm going to come back to this one. And the thing is, is you deal with everything you have to deal with on, in your own head. To be able to have those, it's, it would be perfectly natural and human to be able to go, you know what, some things are going to trigger me, some things are going to get me, they are going to make me have a bad day. But I know this. And the fact that you do know this as well, that's even more self-awareness. But I'm very aware that... <laughs> this is something my GP told me off for, which is quite funny looking back. But I'm like, but... I didn't want to come here saying I was suicidal. Because I don't feel like I've had the worst life in the world. Oh, yeah, that... that, that, that Do you know what I mean? I don't, want to, I don't want to come here playing a violin when there's always someone that's had it worse. And his words, and and I'm glad he said this, because his words were, but the fact is, is you're the one living your life, right? And there will always be someone worse, and there will always be someone better. Yeah. Or so you will think. Give that doctor a high five when he next sees and when he said, And when he said that, that, that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. So now I don't go around telling every Tom, Dick and Harry my life story. They don't need to know. It doesn't do me any good. Also, not all of them deserve it. But at the same time, you know, but at the same time, some people may well have had, oh, you know, circumstances in their life that could make mine look like a piece of cake. Mm. But something I've had to learn mm. is that does not mean... I can ignore it. No. I agree. But yeah, I mean, um, I am, I'm getting there. You're doing I'm getting well. there, I feel, I feel like I'm getting there. You're doing very well. But, um. One step at a time. Yeah. So, uh, we're gonna, we're, uh, we're gonna wrap up on the air podcast. I'm gonna, I ask this of everybody. If you was to see somebody going through the exact same thing you were going through, what would the three bits of advice you would give them or bit of guidance you would give them? The first bit of guidance I would give would be if there's a person close to you, in my case it was my mum, mm-hmm. if there is a person close to you that is probably one of the closest people to you but you feel like you cannot tell, mm-hmm because they might judge you or whatever, the likelihood is they're the ones you should actually tell. Yeah. My second piece of advice would be um, is that there are other people out there. The chances are there are other people out there that have gone through very similar situations to you. Mm -hmm. And it's very healthy if you find those people to talk about them However, that does not take away from, it does not mean that you're in some way, not, don't have your own battle to fight. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that what you are experiencing, experiencing is somehow less significant because you're not the only one. Mm. Yeah. There will be other people out there to relate to. Okay, but you still need to be... You still need to recognise that this is your fight. Yeah. And my third piece of advice will be, you have to really believe, not just want, but really believe 
that you want that you are going to change things and you want to change things mm -hmm. because you can have a hundred people around you giving you all the advice in the world if you don't actually one day say right make a, di a small change mm -hmm. and I mean a small change if you do not take the responsibility for yourself because that's what I see it as you have to take responsibility for your own health mm -hmm. and that starts with recognising where you're at in your life yeah uh, once, once you get to that point once you get to the point where you're like right I am going to take responsibility for myself yeah act on it but not only act on it Tell the person that you needed to tell mm. that you are acting on it. Gives you because nothing in this process is possible on your own. Gives you accountability if you tell somebody as you're doing it. You I can't do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. No, you won't. I I completely agree with that. And one. what I mean by that is, there will be someone that cares about you, even if it feels like they don't. There definitely will be. There will be at least one person that cares enough that will say, you are not going to do this on your own. Whether or not you've met them yet, mm. there will be one person. Well, I think that's some great um, advice. I think from me, from this, I would say, I think on my point of view, I would say, for one thing, well done with the amount of self-awareness that you have. <laughs> I think that self-awareness is the key to being able to just work through it all and do whatever it takes to gain self-awareness and even if that's just figuring out what triggers you and working on that for now i think try your best to figure out yourself and how to help yourself if that is also reaching out reach out there's no harm in asking for help um for for men i would say definitely ask more i think i know it's really hard but that like like john says if there is one person that you need to read that you think you could reach out to you could always what's the worst they're going to say is no because i very much doubt they're going to if they love and care for you very rarely would anybody say no if they love and care for you and most people in your life will love and care for you and i think my last takeaway of it is is just because something has happened to you you can turn it into good it can be really hard the road can be very long and it can take a very long process, but there, there is some good and you can turn it into good. And even if it is just getting through the day, there is always some good. You might not see it. It might take that person that you've uh, reached out to to go, dude, just show me a little bit of good. There will be some, but uh, that's my takeaways from this. So I'd like to thank you for being part of it. Um, Thank you for having me. It's and, been very therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping that uh, a man's point of view of this will hopefully help another man speak out or at least feel comfortable within themselves knowing that they're not alone. And uh, I would also like to say, if you are a man struggling, please reach out to somebody. I cannot stress this enough. There are people that love you and care. And if you feel that you are on the very edge of taking that step, the Samaritans, like John said, that he called Samaritans. It wasn't for him, but there is that. There are loved ones. There are friends. There are, there are somebody. I can guarantee you, like John says, there is somebody that cares. 
So from uh, the end of another episode, I would like to say good day, good brew. If you like this episode and want to listen to more, I have over 60 episodes of A Copper With. And they go from me talking on my own about subjects and stories of my life to others. And some people I've spoken to have incredible, incredible stories. And that's what it's all about. Talking about people's stories over a cup of tea. And having those open conversations. So, like I say, if you like, share, subscribe, rate. That's all appreciated. And thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to us.